0: Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message.
1: All right, so I want to to talk to you about the word salvation tonight, and I, I want to see if I can... My gift is look. I, I can't sing. I can't like. No matter what I do tonight, there's no feasible way I could work as hard as the guy that was sitting here, right? <laughs> like that, like that, that, that was. He's like got this motor that can't like. It just doesn't stop. But, but my my gift is to put language around things to help people see things. Like so, because words matter less than how we picture words functioning. Right? So I was sitting over there. So at one point in the um, ministry time, um, I, I, I saw someone who was in quite severe, um, uh, to me, it looked like emotional distress. And then the, the lady prayed for her, and, and there was this like, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it, this relief on this lady's face. And then they, they shared a, a genuine embrace. Um, it was all, it was all, looked very, very normal. It wasn't like weirdo stuff. It was, it was a genuine sort of, I've had an encounter um, with God through sharing hope with someone else, and I feel better. I am relieved. Now, the Bible calls that salvation, all right? So we tend to only think about the word salvation in one dimension. So we tend to think about salvation as Um, I'm forgiven of my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die, okay? Amen, amen, great. Yeah, absolutely. We fully embrace that. Not only embrace it, we honor it. We um, we should actually probably think about it more often with great gratitude. A- 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 absolutely. But but the word salvation is used in at least seven different ways in Scripture. And so I want to talk tonight about one way that's not necessarily the forgiveness of sins um, and not necessarily about going to heaven, although I honor that. Like, it's not either or. Two things can be true at the same time. I mean, the word salvation in the Bible could be used to be healed from something. And if you've ever had a sickness and then you no longer have the sickness, you could say, I was saved from that. Or just to be rescued from a, uh, a dangerous situation. They use the word salvation for that. They, they also use the word salvation um, to describe when something's oppressing us and then, and then God, he confronts the oppression. And so I want to talk to you about that side tonight, because I think what you saw, if, I was, if somebody would say, put language on people being touched by God, I would say, what you see, because most of the people being touched by God were already saved in the sense that they're forgiven and on their way to heaven. But in one sense, salvation in terms of forgiveness of sins is only part of the story. The other part of the story is, and the other question is, is God willing to engage my broken story right here, now, today, and confront what is causing me suffering? That's that's also called salvation. So there, there's this guy named Paul, and he's writing to some people in Colossians about what it means to see the world through the cross and resurrection. For for Paul, Jesus wasn't somebody to believe in. Demons believe in Jesus. It was it was Jesus was somebody to fundamentally shape the way we see our whole world. That's two different things. Yeah. And so he's talking about the implications for this. And in Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen, here's what he says: Once. Uh, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So there's that dead to alive metaphor. He forgave us all our sins. So I want to say 10 seconds of pause, thought, gratitude. Yes, our sins are forgiven, and that is called salvation. We don't owe God any more. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So yes, yes, part of salvation is this forgiveness of sins, no more owing God. And I honor that. But I want to talk about the next sentence for the rest of the night. Keep going. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, By the cross. So for Paul, one part of salvation was the forgiveness of sins. But another part of salvation was God's intent to confront things that oppress us here, now, today. Let's say it this way. In one sense, salvation is someday, someday, someday the lion and the lamb. Someday no more pain. Someday no more crying. Yes, amen. But in another sense, salvation is about here, now, today. In the next three years, people are going to be coming in here and they do want to know can I get my sins forgiven? But the question underneath that question is not just the forgiveness of sins. They wanna know how willing is God to engage the brokenness of my life, not to hurt me, criticize me, shame me, or condemn me, but to wrap his presence around it to make a better story by confronting oppression. That. Now to understand this, Paul's a rabbi, and he's referencing something in the Old Testament. He's referencing something in the Exodus. As far as I know, this is one of the first mentions of the word salvation in the whole Bible. And in this context, it has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins. This is Exodus chapter 3. Check this out. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Crying out. Suffering. Slave drivers. So I'm going to come down and rescue them. Now, the word rescue there is the same word we get the word salvation from. could easily translate that. I'm going to come down and save them. I'm going to bring salvation to their situation. In this context, salvation has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins, but rather everything to do with God notices something, someone, some situation that is causing us pain, oppression, suffering, disrepair, slave drivery, and he's going to confront that thing head on. Again, one part of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. Yes, amen, heaven, afterlife. Death doesn't get the last word. Resurrection does. Yes, 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 yes. Someday, someday. Yes, yes, yes. We, we're so thankful for it. We embrace it. But the other side of salvation is actually there's something going on right here now today. And it's causing you suffering. And God is not happy about it. And he wants to rescue us. Now, to understand this, we got to go back and understand something else. If I could have about four minutes for some deeper theology here, okay? Hold on to something, and if you're like, oh no, no, trust me, I'm decent at this, right? Next slide, this is Genesis chapter two, verse 10, very early in the story. A river was watering the garden, it flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was called Pishon, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold, the gold's perfect. What an odd set of details. There's a river called Pishon, It's winding through the whole land of Havilah. By the way, the gold in the riverbeds, perfect. Strange. Three key words, Pishon, Havilah, and gold. Next slide. Let's see what this takes us. So the word Pishon means hope. Ancient Hebrew only had 8,000 words, so one word had to mean a lot of things, right? Pishon was hope. Um, all Hebrew letters were pictures, so all Hebrew words were comic strips. They told a story. Peshan is like um, peshan is like uh, something looks dead and it bursts forth with life. It's kind of like an extinct volcano. We thought there was no more life, but we're hearing the rumblings of life after we thought something was dead. We sing songs like that That now, like, I hear the sounds of dry bones rattling, right? It's that, right? Or, or he turns graves into gardens. That's, that's another one. That might even be the same song. I don't know. I'm not a musician. But, but the idea is, is something looks dead and then bursts forth with life. It's also the word surprise, <laughs> Don't, don't, don't panic about this. Don't panic about this. In ancient, ancient, ancient Hebrew, there was no word for resurrection. There wasn't. Don't panic. There was, there was no word for car, airplane, soda. You don't have a word for something until you see it. In their experience, dead people stayed dead. And so, so once, once they had some sort of precedent for a dead, something that, something that was dead coming back to life, they just added a couple letters to this. So the root word resurrection in Hebrew is surprise, right? Hope. Like, it's, it, it, like it's, it's in that that makes sense. Like, if I died today and you came to my funeral on Wednesday and I showed up here next Sunday, surprise sort of cuts it. For, for, for tonight, we'll keep it at hope. So it says there's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of Havila. Havila is more straightforward. Havila means suffering, oppression, pain. In, in other words, the, the, the writer of Genesis is saying, hey, um, there's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. Or let's say it backwards. If you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flow and somewhere in it, you just gotta go find it. It's, it's, it's that. It's that. So, so, so totally forgiven people come up here seeking a touch from God. What are they asking? Are they asking to be saved? Yes. They're, they're, they're not just asking for the forgiveness of sins. They're, they're asking for, is God willing to confront my oppression? There's a river called hope and it's winding through the entire land of suffering. Or if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flow and somewhere in it, you just gotta go find it. The problem is, is that there's a lot of rivers in the land of suffering. There's a river called give up, sell out, make matters worse. You don't want to find them rivers. <laughs> you want the river of hope. And the author says something strange. He says, all, the river of hope has perfect gold in the riverbed. Now, now gold, just like the other three words, has pictures. All, all ancient Hebrew was pictures. They learned to write in Egypt. It was hier- ancient hieroglyphics. So so you got these pictures. Gold is three pictures. It's an eyeball. It's a man harvesting supply, and it's a house or house of God. So so when an ancient Hebrew person read the word gold, they read, behold, the one who brings a substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. So so one quick science lesson. This is science now. If um, If you take perfect gold and you put it in water, it has to be perfect gold. All it takes is one part of gold to 100,000 parts of water, and it turns all the water blood red. There, there, was, a, uh, there was a scientist in Perth who got moved. He was listening to this, and, and he got moved. He took me to his lab and showed it to me. He gave me a little vial. If, you, if you've ever had blood drawn, it looked exactly like that. And he, I said, what is that? He said, it's a billionth of a gram of perfect gold in that vial of water, and it turns all of it blood red. He said, "It's how they, it makes a colloidal suspension. It's how they make stained glass, all kinds of stuff like that. I'm like, well, I used to have it with me. I'd stand at, if I was going to talk about this, I'd stand at the thing and I'd say, welcome to church, you picked a great day to come. And someone would always say, why are you carrying your blood sample? It looked exactly like that. It looked, so, so think about it. If the river of hope in the land of suffering has perfect gold in the riverbed, what color would the river have been? Red. the, the Talmud says that when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, they went and spent 40 days with their feet in the red river Pishon. So uh, in their world, If water turns red, it means hope flows through suffering. Let's put all of this together. If you're not into Bible nerddom, come back now. Here's the summary. Next slide. Next one. So the summary is there's a river called hope, and it's winding through the entire land of suffering because, behold, the one who brings the substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. So that's Genesis chapter 2, very early in the story. So... So in their world, when you see water turning red, it means hope flows through suffering. Hmm, fast forward to Egypt. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm gonna save them. How does God save them? 10 plagues. What was the first plague? All the water turns to? Yeah, 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 yeah. To the Egyptians, that was a curse. To the Hebrew people, there would have been a buzz in the camp. Hey, did you hear? We're in the land of suffering now, but water's turning red. Hope's fixing the flow, see? It's this theme. It's it's this unmistakable pattern all the way through Scripture. Like Moses gets them out of Egypt into the promised land. What do they have to walk through? The red red water. (laughs) What? What? I've, I've seen the Red Sea. It's most definitely blue. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely, you can't mistake it. It's definitely blue. How does it call the, well, first of all, it's Reed Sea, and it just gets red. But, but literally, when water turns red, it's like hope flows through suffering. What happens to the Red Sea? It parts. Where do you see God? Where else do you see God parting water? Genesis chapter 1. He took the chaotic water and locked it in the heavens above and the earth below. In their literature, when water parts or turns red, it means hope flows through suffering, and there's fresh starts, second chances, clean slates, new creation, and the opportunity to write a better story. This is the theological language for what my role at Numa is to be a teacher, and so this is the theological language around these encounters. It's like, wait a minute, what you're seeing is salvation in the sense that God is being willing to engage people suffering with hope. It's water turning red. It's that. Oh, by the way, it's even in nature. I've never given birth, nor have I ever seen a birth, nor do I think I've missed a whole lot. (laughs) So I got to tell you. Everything I know about childbirth, I learned on the internet, okay? So if you're a mom, please forgive, please see the meaning, not the detail, and especially if you're an OBGYN, okay? Like, I totally surrender to your knowledge. I, I'm just saying, when a woman goes to give birth, the first thing that happens is her water breaks. She, on TV, it's like, oh, my water broke, right? And, and, then, and then she enters into a time of labor or suffering. And in labor, suffering, what two fluids mix together? Blood and water. Said in the greatest suffering a woman might ever know, at the end of the stream is a bundle of joy. Even in nature, when you see blood and water converging, it means hope is flowing at the end of the suffering. This, oh, okay, so later. Okay, so there's this one time. (laughs) There's this guy, later this guy named Jesus, right? He's really important to us. And and, but, but to them, they're like, "What is this guy? He's like a rabbi. What's going on? What's he about?" And remember, he, he goes to a wedding and performs his first miracle by turning all the water into, oh, oh right. What color's wine? <laughs> oh, right right? What, what's Jesus doing? Is he, is he providing adult beverages for the party? You know, No. Is he trying to start boring theological debates about whether he drank or not? No. What's he doing? These people are enslaved to the Romans. And, he, and, he's, and he's telling them in a language they understand. Hey, you might be in the land of suffering now, but hope's fixing to flow. Come on. Like, 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 there's this one time he, he um, He goes to this feast and into this feast, everybody's there and they do something called the wine and water ceremony. The convergence of wine and water is very important to their culture. So they would pour the wine and the water on the spout and the spout would overflow and then the mixture of wine and water would flow between the people. It's at that point Jesus stands up and in a loud voice says, I am the living water. What's he saying? Oh, 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 you you know the the, the hope that's supposed to flow through suffering that the temple's been promising for years but failed to deliver? I'm here to bring it. (laughs) This is... Hope flows suffering. <laughs> Years later, he ends up on a cross. And the gospel writers say that at the end of the crucifixion scene, they need to make sure he's dead. So this guy takes a spear and sticks it in his side. And, and the gospel writers say that out of his side came a steady flow of blood and water. What are they saying? At, at the foot of the greatest suffering a man might have ever known, that's the spot where you find hope flowing right through the middle of your suffering. In Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, red water, hopelessly suffering. I, I, w- I went back. And just to uh, bring everybody back uh, to center here, um, salvation is about the forgiveness of sins, and it is about someday, but it's also about a confrontation of oppression and suffering here, now, today. I went back and read the Gospels, all four of them, actually, and I was looking for every time Jesus used the word salvation or forgiveness or whatever. But when you look at the story, it was about confronting oppression. Like, like, and it's everywhere, by the way, once you look for it. Like, well, there's this one time. There's this guy named Zacchaeus, and he's up a tree. And it says that Zacchaeus that, that, that Zacchaeus was up a tree looking for Jesus, and it says that Jesus was with a multitude, a, a lot of people. And it says that he stopped the multitude, and he says, Zacchaeus! Come on down, man. I'm eating with you today, bro. And it says Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus, he said, look, here and now I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And what does Jesus say? That's it. Salvation has come to your house. (sighs) Is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay, we gotta practice this. Okay, so if I ask you if Jesus Christ is allowed to do something, the answer is a very loud yes. I've been here long enough to know you guys aren't ashamed to speak it up, all right? All right? Is, is, is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. So you can call someone saved because they give half what they have to the poor? Yes. Mm-hmm. No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no sinner's prayer. No Romans 10, 9, and 10. I know it surprises some people. Anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. <laughs> what was the only way to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? tax collectors. So what do you do when the only place salvation is on altar, is on, is on offer? They forbid your presence because of your job. What do you do? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power, and he sees this man's heart change one millimeter, and he meets him the rest of the way. This was about the forgiveness of sins, but it was also about an in-your-face confrontation to a system that excluded someone that wanted a touch from God. There's this one time. Jesus goes by a prostitute's house, which leads to this question. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. What would have been going on at a prostitute's house? Business. <laughs> Jesus is between customers, which leads to this question. Would there be a worse place to ever run into Jesus? Imagine, like, Jesus is in the foyer, like, you know, and the guy comes out of the back room, and he's like, oh, Jesus, hey, man, I was just here to use the toilet, and it says that the prostitute was so moved by his compassion that she knelt down and wiped his feet with her hair, and what does Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. So you can get your sins forgiven by wiping his feet with your hair? Yes. No temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no sacrifice, no sinners. Wow. What was the only way to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. What do you do when the only place salvation is on offer? Forbid your presence because of your job. Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. He sees her heart change one millimeter. He meets her the rest of the way. And salvation came to her house. <laughs> Aren't you See, we tend to say Jesus is the only way. okay. Unless what we mean by that is, is my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. I came to Jesus by this way, so you got to come to Jesus my way, or it's not really coming to Jesus. I think, I think we do that because we figure if everybody comes to Jesus our way, Jesus can't possibly like reject us all. But here's the thing, right? right? Aren't you glad that's not the rule? Aren't you glad we? Aren't you glad we don't read that passage and go, "Okay, here's the way to be saved. We got to rub Jesus' feet with our hair." Right? Like, like, with all respect to my bald brothers in the room, right? Me and my friend there. I see that out there, and oh Lord, heaven! Oh my goodness, sir! Oh my Grant! Whoop! Grant, Grant, with all, Grant, with all respect to you, sir, for you to wipe his feet with your hair'd be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. What you see in the Bible is more profound than some magic method. You see Jesus perceiving heart change and then meeting them the rest of the way. Wow. Uh, it's an, in your face. Like, what, wait, what? There's this one time, there was this um, paralyzed dude, and Jesus speaking in a full house, and it's quite chaotic, and um, he can't get in. And so his friends take him to the roof and cut a hole and lower him down. It's a chaotic scene. You gotta be a world class communicator to overcome distractions. Like if a two-year-old started running laps in here, there'd be nothing I could do, right? Somebody'd be repelling from the roof. That it's over. <laughs> so this guy comes down, and Jesus, and it says this. And Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. So can you be forgiven because someone else is believing for you? Yes. Oh. Say, Shane, how far do you take that? I do not know. I think it is essential that every person consents and participates to the work of God in their life. At the same time, if you're a mom and you believe in for your unbelieving children, you keep doing that. Jesus sees that stuff. (laughs) A later writer named Paul said, don't you know it's the faith of a saved wife that can save her unbelieving husband? (laughs) Like, I was talking about this one time and this guy afterwards said, what are you saying, Shane? What are you saying? You're saying you can go to heaven by marrying the right woman? Okay, if after all of this, if that's your question, you have missed the point entirely. That's number one. Number two, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is above my pay grade and yours. Can you go to heaven by marrying the right woman? I have no idea. I do know if you marry the wrong one, you'll live in hell today. That's a fact. Yes, sir. What was the only way to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Crippled people. They were seen as something was wrong with them, rejected by God. So, what do you do if the only place where salvation's on offer rejects your desire to be touched by God because of something about you? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppression and he sees one millimeter of a heart change to work with and he rushes the rest of the way. This is the forgiveness of sins, but it's also an in your face confrontation to oppression. It's the smashing of every box where people tried to dominate people by telling them how they had to come to God. Come this is Jesus. There's this one time, there's this guy next to Jesus on a cross. He's having a bad day. (laughs) And he can't breathe. All he can get is three words out of his mouth. Please remember me. And what does Jesus say? Well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2023. (laughs) Imagine that conversation. Sinner's prayer, what's that? It's this prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up. (laughs) What? No. What was the only way for that man to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. What would he have to do? Get off the cross, run by the temple, get a priest, do a thing, (laughs) and nothing. No way. No way. Jesus sees his heart change one millimeter, and he says, today, today. This is the forgiveness of sins, but it's also a confrontation. Of, it's a confrontation to the people who said their way was the only way. I, I, could talk, I could tell you stories about this till tomorrow, but if you get hungry, you'll turn on me. It's bad. <laughs> I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one last story. It'll take me a bit. but It was my least favorite story in the Bible, but it became one of my favorite stories. I hated the story. I, I, it was one of those things I'd never heard a sermon on, and thank God we never preached about it, because it's awful. The problem is, is that it's not one of them stories that's in Leviticus, and you can go, oh, that was back then. It's like Jesus stuff. The story's in John chapter 5. We won't read it, I'll tell it. It's a story about a pool called Bethesda. It's a terrible story. The reason you've never heard a sermon on it is because it's a terrible story. I, 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 actually, I, I actually saw a Bible once in six-point font at the bottom, the editor of that edition of the Bible said, we're not sure this should be in the Bible. I don't blame him. If you don't know the story, I'll tell it. Enough people will know the story be like, this is basically the way it goes. Here's what it says. In John chapter 5, it says, Just inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethesda. And occasionally an angel would stir the water of the pool, and the first person in would get healed, and no one else. Basically what it says. Is anybody okay with that? What an awful story! This is what it makes God sound like. God's in heaven, and he's like all bored, Right? He's like, I don't have enough to do. It. I just have to entertain me. Give me an angel over here. Angel now. Angel's like, yes, sir, right? And God's like, hey, you see that pool down there? It's called Bethesda. Now, only when I tell you, and I mean only when I tell you, I want you to take your finger and stir the water. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to heal the first person that gets in and no one else. We'll successfully create a race amongst the afflicted because nothing gets my God heart beating like a bunch of crippled people trying to move fast. This is going to be awesome. And there's some bookie in heaven going, 20 to win, 80, 20 to win, 80, 300 to one. All day. That guy's got no legs, 4,000 to one. It's a terrible story. Then Jesus shows up and makes it worse. Jesus picks the sickest dude in the whole place, 38 years paralyzed. And he's sarcastic. He's like, what's the matter, bro? The water don't work for you. The guy's like, Rabbi, you know the rules, only the first one in can get healed. And the jerk with the sore throat keeps jumping in for everybody else. They don't take numbers. I've been here 38 years. No one can help me in. My legs don't work. Oh, boy. I hated that story. If you read that story and loved it, I'd wonder about you. Till I went there. I'll spare you the details. I got invited to study for a week with a top PhD in archaeology and ancient history at the University of Jerusalem. He had listened to something I did, and he invited me to come speak at his synagogue. And I, I was like, why? You've all memorized the Bible. And he said, no, no, you cause discussion. We like that. I'm like, great. And he said, he said, he said, part of your payment will be um, I'll teach you history. I'll start as early as you want, and I'll go as late as you want. I'll teach you history, right? He said, just understand, I don't do tourist tours, I do academic tours. So as long as you're okay with academia, I'm fine. I'm like, oh, that's fine, that's fine with me. We can also skip the part where I talk to people who've forgotten more than I know, but I'll just come study with you. Anyway, it was one of the days. He, I was disoriented, you know, you, I don't know my way around. He goes, this is the sheet gate, you know? I was like, okay. And then right where it says, in John, John 5, right where it says, there's this pole. And this is how uninterested he was in the Pool of Bethesda. Here's what he said. He goes, Yeah, 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 that's the Pool of Bethesda. All right? Walked away. Now, I had a picture in my mind. Everybody does. When you read the picture, when you read the story of the Pool of Bethesda, everybody has a picture of what it looks like, right? My picture was about the size of this room. um, And I thought it was about 18 inches deep. Like, I thought, like, you know, well, I mean, if, if paralyzed people are trying to jump in, you can't have a deep pool. folks be drowning everywhere. I can't have that. He says, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. I couldn't believe what I saw. I was so wrong. Let me show you a picture of the pool of Bethesda. Here it is. That's the pool of Bethesda. I, 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 if you're wondering why this photo is of such high qualities, because I took it myself. Professional photographers everywhere trying to get strangers' hands in their photos. I nailed it. The pool of Bethesda is 100 meters long by 30 meters wide by 40 foot deep. To give you perspective, that is a bridge with a grown man walking across it. He said, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. I said, I, got, I have a question. He said, sure. I said, how many people died here? He said, what? I said, follow my logic. So you're like, you know, paralyzed and you're sitting on that ledge. And someone says, Angel's are in the water. And you're like, oh. And you don't realize till you're in the water that you're number two. You're so dead, bro. His exact words were, quote, you're joking. Everybody knows this. Yeah. Follow my logic here. If everybody knows something I don't know, that makes me the dumbest person on earth. So I said, I'm so embarrassed, but I don't know. I don't know. He said, then we got to talk about this. Because if you're thinking what I think you might be thinking, that would make God awful. I said, yes. (laughs) He asked me two questions. First question, what God was ruling Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth? The answer, Roman Caesar worship. There was upwards of 40 pagan gods in the Jerusalem area. There was Addis, Adonis, Horus, Mithra, Amun-Ra the south, the goat god in the north, the there was all these, all, these, all these gods were allowed to operate in the Judean region. Okay? Second question. He said, you didn't think the angel in John chapter 5 was the angel of our God, did you? I said, well, it had crossed my mind. He said, no, man, how would you ever preach that? how would anybody ever say yes to a Jesus that reveals a God that treats people like that? I said, I'm with you, man. I just didn't know the alternative, bro. (laughs) Calm down. He was so disturbed. He said, I'm in my 60s. I've never till right now considered anyone thought that was the angel of our God. He said, it's so obvious. I don't even include it on the tour. I was like, you might start including this one on the tour, bro. (laughs) He said, no, I'm serious, Shane. Are there people in this world that think John chapter 5 is about our God? I said, there's a few. There's a few. Mostly Kiwis, mostly. Mostly. Mostly New Zealand. He said, no, man. He said, Bethesda was the headquarters to the pagan worship of the Greek god of healing, Serapis. He said, this was like the temple. Where you're standing is the ancient ruins of the temple of Serapis in Jerusalem. And the deep pool that you're looking at right now was the the front yard, like the resort area for the in crowd, right? But that pool would regularly overflow, which caused a water problem. So here's what they did. They dug a tunnel underneath the temple and created a smaller pool in public that acted as a flood catchment or a, a flood deterrent, right? When the water in that pool got too high, they just pulled a lever and it would move underneath the pool to the smaller pool where everybody else was allowed to be. Only the inn people were allowed in that one. The, the public was allowed to hang out in the, the small pool. Let me show you a picture of the small pool. Here it is. Here's All I did was turn around and take a picture. That's the small pool, right? And as you can see, it's about, it's about the size of this room. It's about two feet deep. It's about what I expected. But follow me here. If, if you're taking water from the big pool and putting it underneath the temple to the small pool, what's going to happen to the water in the small pool? It's going to stir up. So the Roman officials and the priests of Serapis got together and said, hey, let's tell the people it's the angel of Serapis healing, stirring. The water, and we'll say only the first one in gets healed, and the sick, the poor, the marginalized, the afflicted will pay us a monthly premium every month to sit the closest to the pool. It was Roman and Serapis' extortion of the poor, afflicted, marginalized, and infirmed. People were paying a premium every month, and all they did was use a plant. The plant knew when the water was going to move. He was always the first one in. Therefore, he was always healed, but he was already healed. It only exacerbated the myth. Now I can preach it, so! Jesus turns up at the biggest epicenter of the oppression of the poor and the sick and the infirmed, and he picks the sickest dude in the whole place. What's the matter, bro? The water don't work for you, but rabbi, the jerk with the sore throat, he gets him first, and then Jesus, without the help of stirred water, heals that man and says, listen, you guys can all be sitting here and taking advantage of the rest of your life, or you can come with me, because the God I reveal does not charge people for healing. This is about the forgiveness of sins, but it's also about an in your face confrontation to suffering here it's hope and suffering coming together he got to the end of the story and i was like everybody knows this he said shane look around you he said seriously i don't even include it on my tour it, that's, it's that obvious there's little half statues of serapis there's all this in the photo behind me right now do you see where that shadow meets that yellow plaque right you can't read it can you Good. I blew it up for you. Check this out. This is a this temple of Serapis. It's on a plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. It gets worse. Next to the plaque was a billboard, <laughs> a giant billboard. Let me show you the billboard. Oh, yeah. See where it says Bethesda? It even references John chapter 5. Pagan medicinal baths. Pagan medicinal baths. It's on a billboard (laughs) next to the plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. Which leads me to this question, if we were wrong about Bethesda, what else could we be wrong about? Maybe we need to open more conversations about God instead of closing them down. Maybe maybe we need to have a spirit of learning, a spirit of being a student, right? This is not simply a story about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is walking right into the epicenter of the worst extortion and oppression of the sick and and the marginalized and the infirm. And they were being taken advantage of every single week. One guy had paid his fee for 38 years and it wasn't working. And Jesus... In your face confrontation to oppression. Now, good sermons are meant to be wrestled with, not agreed with or disagreed with. So let's wrestle for a second. Next slide. What's driving us that we need deliverance from? I'm not talking about getting saved in the sense of forgiveness and going to heaven. I acknowledge that, and I'm gonna assume for a second everybody in here has made that decision, fair. My question isn't that. My question is, is in your forgiven, on your way to heaven state, is there anything driving you that's causing suffering and pain and horror and teaching you that you're less human, that Jesus is not just as interested, Jesus is just as interested in confronting that for you as he is in forgiving your sins. We honor both, but what you're seeing here in in some of those moments tonight is you're not seeing people getting their sins forgiven. You're seeing God's willingness to confront oppression and engage that broken story right here, now, today. It's hope flowing through suffering. What are we doing to help free others from their slavery? You can't want mercy for yourself and justice for everybody else, you know? Maybe I could summarize this entire sermon with one question. Next slide. Where do you need salvation for your house today? Not someday, but here, now, today. So I want us to be quiet before the Lord, and I'm going to invite you to pray a couple of prayers. If the Holy Spirit moves you, pray them. If not, ignore me. There's no vacancy in the Trinity for me, okay? First prayer, Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I'm presenting you. If you're willing to pray that prayer with me, why don't you just pray that underneath your breath? Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I'm presenting you. Second prayer, I want you to take a second and name the oppressor. It's lust, it's anger, it's rage, it's greed, it's revenge, it's retaliation, it's the inability to let it go. I want you to name the thing that when you lay your head down at night, it reminds you that it's in charge. Let's be specific. Let's name it. And then I want us to pray. Holy Spirit, would you come into this broken story and confront my oppressor? Would you bring salvation to my house today? Not someday, but right here, now, today. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your, of your day and a part of your life. I, anything I've done to encourage your walk of faith and for you to say your next yes to Jesus, I celebrate and want to facilitate that. I honor it. I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to be known for your love, to care about people more than plants, to be people of love, to treat people as they are worth and never as they deserve. And when you see a need and know you can meet a need, open your splagna all over that need. May we be people who don't simply affirm salvation after death, but life before death. May we be people who affirm that if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just gotta go find it. May each and every one of you encounter with God a moment where the water turns red. Grace and peace, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for this message today.